Welcome to Beyond the Pixie Dust, a movement of Disney fans searching for meaning and purpose. Our goal is to gather together with other Disney fans, cast members, and Imagineers to discuss the deeper things of life, like hope, grief, joy, and beauty. We want to pursue kingdom-driven lives. So now, I invite you to join us as we dive beyond the We have with us today the man, the myth, the legend, Imagineer. Some call him Mr. Wilson, I've heard. McNair Wilson. And uh, McNair, thanks for joining us today. So excited to be able to talk to you and your treasure trove of stories to be able to kind of pull some of those out of you today and uh, just talk over the next bit that we have here together. Well, thanks for the invite, John. I'm always happy to share from my um, <coughs> amazing years of experience. I've, I feel nothing but fortunate for what I what I had an opportunity to be a part of at Disney over the years from from uh, well I, I don't think we even talked about this my my first years at Disney was in high school okay. um, I had been a professional puppeteer and a friend in the Puppeteers of America organization had built some puppets for Disneyland and in those days the Christmas uh, the, the Christmas parade was the classic Disney characters and they had units for all the different things and rather than just the characters come down they tried to tell a little story and they had mm-hmm. had a Pinocchio boy with Foul Fellow and Gideon walking down the street so they added the next year a, a Stromboli gypsy wagon mm-hmm. with little stages on either side so you could see it from either side of the parade route and my friend Jim Gamble, who was actually a professional airline pilot, but a puppeteer, lifelong puppeteer, built beautiful puppets, built them can-can puppets for those two stages. Mm. And then they to complete the story, they ought to have Pinocchio, Pinocchio as a puppet being manipulated and going down the street with Geppetto. Well, the, Jim built this Geppetto puppet, which was 37 inches. Why it was 37, I don't remember, but it was. Um, and it had 17 strings. Now, those that are listening and don't know anything about puppetry, the average marionette string puppet has about seven strings. If you wanted to do a little something extra like kick, you know, that's a string on the toe that's extra. This had 17 strings. This thing did everything except make smoothies out of its butt. And it was just, <laughs> I mean, his eyebrows moved, his eyes moved. His, it was very, very articulate. And because it was going to be seen in plain sight, even the... Um, uh, the hand grip was was more than just straight wood. It was it all looked hand carved like Geppetto would have made. Wow. Um, it's delightful. So now they build this puppet. Now they need a pu- puppeteer to work it, and they decide that the puppeteer needed to be between this and this, the the height of the puppeteer. Well, the problem is, it's for Christmas, the busiest time of the year for professional puppeteers mm. is Christmas. But they do malls and Christmas parties and so on. And I mean, I knew puppeteers who, uh, you know, fully 50% of their annual income was done between Thanksgiving and New Year's. In fact, there's a famous couple out of Oakland, the Osnowitzes, that that kind of uh, took me under their wing and mentored me a bit. And you've never heard of them, but you've heard of their son, Frank Oz. Oh, yeah. Who was, yeah. Um, uh, Who was created Miss Piggy, but was, was, um, partners with Jim Henson, the two of them started the, the Muppets. Yeah. And then Frank, of course, became a director and a 
saw and he directed the movie version of uh, of the Broadway musical Little Shop of Horrors. But anyway, uh, through the Puppeteers of America, Jim put a little ad in the monthly newsletter, said, we're looking for puppeteer this height. And they thought, you know, we're going to be lucky to have anybody. Jim thought he was probably going to just have to take like a an act, young actor or a Disney dancer, somebody that would know how to move and teach them how to manipulate this puppet. And um, long story short, I got the job and I flew down to mm. Disney for an audition. The audition was trying on the costume to see if it fits. <laughs> and the director of the says, costume fits, you've got the job. I said, may I see the puppet? <laughs> <laughs> and so I walked down the street, you know, in those days, the, the puppet, the parade would go from from town square of course come out there by the fire station go up and end up at um go past the matter up main street past the matterhorn and so on and and out through through um small world and then in the 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 evening parade would go the opposite direction you do that twice a day it took about 20 minutes and they didn't know what to pay me now all the other dancers and so on got paid an hourly rate for a 20 minute parade and i think they all got paid for three hours or something but jim negotiated said this is a professional artisan he should be paid the same rate as your union musicians mm. so i'm being paid for an eight hour day to do two 20-minute parades wow and plus i had a pass and so on i did that for three years and the parades of course were i think we began on the thursday or friday the week the last week of school before christmas vacation ran through christmas vacation and then in Every year is a little different. It ran until a, a day or two or three after after New Year's. Wow. So that was my beginning with being employed by Disney. And that was in high school that you had that opportunity. Yes. It, that's, yes, and that's I was just, six, go ahead. 16 years old. 16 years old. So you were only a couple years older. I was putting it in perspective with just a recent conversation that I had with uh, Disney legend Tom Nabby. He was hired at, at age 12 by Walt to be play the role of Tom oh, Sawyer over on, on right, Tom Sawyer Island. I knew Tom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have this uh, connection of, of, again, this younger age of making the dream happen and you know today we we it's still younger age a lot of people that dream this during their life it's the college program you know that kind of get that first job but you guys had sure. this really entry level i mean at a young age really getting there um but even for you i know from hearing some of your story elsewhere you even have kind of the earlier connection to walt himself uh, can you go back to that and tell us kind of how old were you and the conversation you and walt had and, and what that was like yeah, I'm not. I'm not allowed by law to tell that story, but I will anyway. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I grew up in um, uh, up through about age. Let's see. We moved from well, we moved from Minnesota to Southern California just before I started kindergarten, and a month after we moved there, we went to Disneyland. And I still have, and I've just been repairing and getting ready to have framed the map that I bought that has never been folded. It's rolled up. It's on archival paper. Um, of Disneyland, and when I had it, my first job at, at Imagineering, my first office was a man who just two weeks before I came on staff full time. I was a, I was a, for for a year, I spent one week a month at Imagineering um, consulting with my partner Herb Hansen. We were doing all the street theater at Epcot through our company, Snack Theater, and details to follow film at 11 um but my first office was this man who just retired who was sam mckim one of the great old background artists and animators and if you've seen any drawings of disneyland 
prior to opening, especially of Frontierland or the Haunted Mansion, probably it's a Sam McKim sketch. Mm. And in in that original um, drawing of the Disneyland map, the very first map that he did, are his initials SM in the lower right quadrant of the of the uh, you know we're not allowed to sign or anything. In fact, there are websites dedicated to Sam McKim's initials. He was a delightful man. Um, uh, I, I, a Christian man, I think he was Seventh-day Adventist, I'm not 100% sure about that, mm-hmm. but just a very sweet man and incredibly talented. His son, Matt McKim, was an intern of mine one summer, and Matt still works there full-time as 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 an Imagineer. But, um, so, um, we lived in Pasadena, and uh, the Rose Parade, of course, is there. And the terminus of the parade ends at Pasadena High School, where they have a couple of large, open, grassy areas, along with the street in front of Pasadena High School that is closed out. So when the parade's over, they park all the Rose Parade floats there for about a week or so. And if you've never been to the Rose Parade, the floats are enormous. I mean, they're the size of a, uh, you know, of a small warehouse. People, I take friends, and they're just stunned at the size as these, these floats come by that are, you know, a small building yeah and uh and of course all every inch covered with vegetation of some sort mm. and um also right there at that end of the parade was a small old <clears throat> uh, elementary school that had been turned into a civil defense uh uh emergency services uh, center that was run by the navy U.S. Navy, and specifically their CB unit, which is Construction Battalion. It's, a, it's an interesting visual pun they do. Their logo, their their initials are CB, but their their logo is a bumblebee with a hard hat, goggles, and a riveting gun. And so they're there for any kind of um, special services during earthquakes and so on. And my dad was in the Naval Reserve, so once a month he had to go to some base somewhere and put in a weekend. Well, he had been going out to Los Alamitos Naval Air Station, a good hour's drive from her home, and found out about this place and got transferred there. Come to find out that at the end of the parade every year, this, the Navy would put on a nice buffet lunch there in their facility for the Rose Queen and her court, the mayor of Pasadena, a few other dignitaries, and whoever the Grand Marshal was. And the Grand Marshal was always a dignitary celebrity. One year it was the Prime Minister of Thailand, but it was, you know, it had been Bob Hope, Roy Rogers, and Dale Evans, you name it. Um, <clears throat> and that was always announced usually in February for the following year, and along with whatever the uh, theme was going to be. And there was a big contest for that. Long story short, oops, too late. Uh, <laughs> it was announced that the following year, which would have been January 66, uh, Walt Disney was selected and accepted the invitation to be the the, 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 the Grand Marshal. And my dad, one of his jobs was kind of community information and, and PR. And so it was his task to call the studio and check and see if Mr. Disney had any uh, dietary proclivities or any particular favorites that he wanted or didn't want, that they would be having this buffet lunch and they could provide almost anything. And was he a coffee drinker or not? And would they mind if they would uh, arrange to bring him a thermos of hot coffee at the beginning of the parade to have in the car with him. Hmm. And, um, and they were just unbelievably pleased. The secretary, Walt's secretary, told my dad, all the places he's ever spoken, especially a lot of luncheons and stuff, nobody had ever asked that question. Now, these days, I do a lot of 
public speaking conventions and conferences and and so on and they always ask you those things do you have any dietary proclivities and so on and so yeah. on and i am allergic to not having chocolate less than three times a day <laughs> things like that and yeah. it's interesting though I, I do a lot of work with chick-fil-a and one of the things they always bring me is the bag of their chocolate chunk cookies which is just insanely wrong of them but i never <laughs> complained anyway i asked my dad i said well are we going to get to meet him he said well i uh, let me check and so my dad called back and he says, you know, we have a small little uh, retinue of children who are the children of the officers. Would Mr. Disney be able to or have any time or interest to meet with the children? They all probably want to get his autograph. It wouldn't be 10, 15 minutes for a dozen or so children. And the secretary checked with Walt, called back, said that would be fine. So he got off. They got him to the bathroom, handed him some fresh coffee. And we went into this room. Now, remember, it's an old elementary school, so it's a linoleum floor, and the Navy has been swabbing decks for years, and they had scrubbed these floors, waxed these floors, cleaned the wax, shined the, shined the, shined the wax that had been cleaned. So these floors were nice and slippery. And Walt came into the room, and he said, I need a chair. So I went and got one of the chair, elementary chairs with the metal bottoms, and I'm running across the room towards Walt Disney, and my tennis shoes or something caught on the linoleum, the chair slipped out of my hand, slid all the way across the room, and hit Walt Disney in the shin. <laughs> wow. And he grabbed the chair, and I heard him go, oh! Like that, like, and I just knew that me or some part of me was going to be dashed into hell very quickly within the next <laughs> few minutes. And, um, uh, so I went, I was just too terrified to leave the room. I went and stood in the corner. And not five minutes later, all the kids had got his autograph and moved on. You know, kids didn't carry, you know, little instamatic cameras or anything. And there were no parents in the room. And, of course, we didn't have cell phones with cameras in them, which today we would have had. And all of a sudden, I heard this voice say, hey, what are you doing over there? And I turned around, and it's me and Walt alone in a room. Now, this is January 1st, 1966. My birthday is January 4th. So I'm just three days shy of my 14th birthday. I'm 13. Um, uh, uh, middle of eighth grade. And um, young, but not, not a little kid. And uh, and I said, gee, I'm sorry, Mr. Disney. I'm sorry. It slipped on my hand. I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. I said, no, really, I'm sorry. I'm, I didn't mean it. He said, I'm fine. He said, let me show you. And he put his, uh, I, I can remember this, John, like it was, this morning, he put his leg up in the chair, hiked up his pants. He said, see, no bruise. And I remember he was wearing knee-high socks with garters on them. <laughs> and he said, look at there. And he grabbed one and snapped the garter. He said, suspenders for socks. Who the thunk? <laughs> I don't know. If he said, imagine that, something like that. And and, and I said, well, that's pretty nifty. He says, yep. And then he pulled up the other guy. He said, both, got him on both sides. So he said, I'm fine. See, no bruising. And so he said, what do you got there? And he pointed to my spiral sketchbook. And I said, it's my sketchbook. So I have, have it with me every day, take it to school. And and oh, he asked me, he said, do you take it to school? And I said, oh, yes, sir, every class, every day. He said, well, the teachers do. And I said, well, they don't like it, but my dad's the principal, so I don't get too much trouble. Hmm. And uh, they'd say, can you put it away while we do this particular thing? And he began to thumb through it. I had pictures of little towns that I'd drawn in trains. And he'd go, oh, trains, you like trains? He said, you, I said, I do. He said, you like my train? I said, I like all your trains. He said, all my trains. I said, well, you, 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 you've got the Rainbow Caverns train, and you have the Casey Jr. train, and then you have the main train that goes around. The he says, I do have several trains. Good for you. 
And he was just thinking of the main train around the park. <laughs> and uh, and so, and, 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 and I said, I guess the monorail could be considered a train. He said, it's absolutely a train. And so he's slumming through. He said, now, what, what do you want to do with all these drawings here? He wanted to be an architect or something. And I said, and I had seen Claude Coates on an episode of Disney, the Sunday night program where Claude was giving a tour of the very first Disneyland ambassador uh, to to the to the parks, and and they said this is Claude. He's our head Imagineer in charge of this new project. And I yelled at my mom. I said, Imagineer, mom, and man, what's that? I said, oh, no. I said so. I always said I I said, Mister Disney, I want to be like your friend Claude was on TV with you. And he's an imagine imagine. He said Imagineer. I said, yeah, that. And he looked at my sketchbook and he looked back up at me and he poked me in the shoulder. And he said, well, so you shall be. Hmm. Now, fast forward several years, and I'm having dinner in Alfredo's at Italy with Marty Sklar and Bob Weiss, who was in charge of the Disney MGM Studios project at the time, worked very closely with Bob uh, on just a whole raft of things. Great guy, who's now stepping down, you know, from being president to having Marty's old um, title, Global Design Ambassador, which is, you know, why don't they just call him the fourth member of the Trinity? <laughs> but uh, just knowing Bob, I, and this is just my opinion, I don't know any inside information. I mean, I've been in session with Bob. I go in and have lunch there once a year or so, and I always check, go by his office and say hi. And um, But I just think with all the changes and the move to Florida and so on, I think just Bob is ready to get out of the line of fire of all the craziness that's that's to come. My two cents is moving Imagineering to Florida is mm. is uh, several notches below stupid. But, um, you know, because of all the resources that are in Southern California. Um, and so we'll see what happens. You know, I have great faith, but a lot of the really good guys are leaving early. Anyway, mm. uh, spent that day then, that those probably 10, 15 minutes, and actually came looking for me because I, I was going longer than I should have been. And I did not get Walt's autograph after all of that. Now, the the end of the story, which surprises me as much as anybody, when I was moving from Oakland, California, out of my loft in a 1917 cotton mill to here in Colorado in 2009, I decided to go through every box of stuff I had. Because sometimes you move and you don't go through your boxes. I went through everything. And I had this one large box of all these rolled up prints and posters and other things and when they did the old disney uh gallery above the above pirates of the caribbean opening um doors in um, disneyland um they did these opening um limited edition prints of artwork uh, herbie ryman's sketch of the castle um so on and they came in these beautiful blue heavy heavy cardboard tubes and I had one of those prints but it was up in frame so I had this tube that I didn't use but I thought just in case I'm going to double check and when I left Disney Imagineering I couldn't find my map of, of, of Disneyland and I opened this tube that the that Herbie's drawing had been in and I had Herbie signed it you know to me by name there was my Disneyland map and I kept it at my office at Imagineering because guys would come by and I'd get their autographs, and I think I've counted 22 or 23 signatures that I have on the map from 
Claude Coates to Sam McKim to to Mark Davis to you know you name it they're all there mm. Bill Evans who did all the agriculture all the planting and so on um, uh, Bill Martin whose middle name is Wilson who who was the architect did uh, Cinderella's Castle in Florida so I have all those signatures on that map so I need to get it framed and protected Wow yeah absolutely but, but, that's going to be worth oh, some money there so I hadn't, I was telling you I didn't get Walt Disney's autograph. One of the things I found in going through all these boxes was this envelope, and a, a Manila envelope, and I had a piece of cardboard, and it's just written on the outside in my dad's handwriting. Uh, my my legal first name is Craig, Craig McNeil Wilson. It said Craig, New Year's '66. I thought, what the heck is this? Because uh. I'd said to my dad, I forgot to get his autograph. He says, Oh, we'll take care of that. And in the magazine, the program that they sell every year at the, at the, um, at the Rose Parade, there was a half page. There was a photo of Walt and then just a paragraph about him. My dad had gotten one of those programs, had Walt sign that page, tore it out, and put it in this manila envelope. Mm. And I don't know that I had ever seen that. Wow. And here we are, 2009, I finally discovered it, and I have it. Uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm telling that story in my new book that, that's the sequel to Hatch, my brainstorming book, and I'm going to reproduce that page with Walt's signature. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, he, so your dad did pull through. He did, uh, you just never knew until recently the the promise no, came through. I have photos that my dad shot of Walt standing at this beautifully decorated table, our buffet table that my mother had decorated. Walt standing there while one of these stewards um, was pointing out to Walt what's on the table, what's available, and so on. And the Rose Queen's in front of him. Um, but yeah. I didn't know that I had actually gotten his autograph. All I had was the story of me spending quite, quite a bit of time in, in in the scope of things, 10, 15 minutes alone with Walt. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you've had it all this years. You all these years, you just didn't know about it. Yeah. When I yeah. think back to that that story, um, something kind of as you were talking through that again, because I've I've heard you tell that before in other places, and uh, but something stood out to me uh, that differently this time that I hadn't thought of, and that is just you know your desire and there's so many like it of uh, stories about interactions of children with Walt Disney whether it was writing to him or whether it was in person where you know you said hey I want to you essentially said hey I want to be Imagineer and he says you know that's what you're going to do and of course at that age you weren't anything close to an Imagineer you were sketching you know as a as a teenager does and I'm, I'm thinking about you know uh, I know McNair that you're a Christian and, and so am I and so what comes to mind for me is like like in Matthew 16, where here's this fisherman, Peter, who's just totally, you know, not anything like a rock. And yet Jesus says to him, hey, you know what? Um, I tell you that you're the rock and I'm going to build my church on this rock. And it's kind of this reality of being able to look into somebody and say, see who they're becoming and say, yeah, you know what? This is who you are. And I, uh, you know, Walt was able to see that in you. And sure enough, that's exactly what you became. You became this Imagineer. Uh, he was able to see what you were becoming, not necessarily what you were at that very moment. That's true. That's absolutely true. I was, I was thinking too the other day, there's a new movie coming out. Um, about um, uh, the former NFL quarterback, uh, Kurt Warner. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he had been struggling and wasn't getting into the NFL and he was bagging groceries at a grocery store and working in, in uh, arena football just to keep up his chops. And the Rams drafted him. 
or I guess he was a walk-on or something. Anyway, he wasn't all their first choice. And they're in training camp his first year, and their quarterback, something happened to him, and he was down for the count. And the coach, Dick Vermeer, the 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 the, um, the, the, the movie is about their relationship. And Dick mm-hmm. Vermeer said to Kurt Warner, he says, there's something in you, something special in you. I'm not sure what it is yet, but we'll find out. And Kurt Werner came from obscurity to win the first, the, the, win the Super Bowl that year. They were un, undefeated that whole year. Mm. And here's a kid that somebody saw something in. And yeah. you know the rest that they say is absolutely legendary. Now, not every Kurt Werner gets that chance, but I certainly yeah. believe that opportunity is preparing yourself for a chance that may come along. Yeah. Absolutely. And then also for us to, to kind of be that Walt Disney or that coach to somebody else to look at other people and say, okay, what can I speak into their life and, and you know, to encourage others that, that may just need that little nudge to say, yeah, you know what, you can do this and here's how, or just to give that little encouragement. Um, I, I, I could do an entire book on people who have encouraged and mentored me, including co-op coaches that Marty Sklar and Bob Weiss and Tony Tony Baxter, just 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 the Disney encouragers. In fact, this book that I'm writing is based on my TED talk, "Recapturing Your Creative Spirit," which was a presentation I made based on a year of research to say what is creativity. Because I was doing my brainstorming class, and Mike Eisner took the class, encouraged me to teach at the studio. Said, "You think you could teach this to Disney execs?" I said, "I don't know, Michael. I've met some of those guys." <laughs> so you don't think they're smart enough? I said, "I think they're too smart." The hardest thing to teach somebody is that which they think they already know. Yeah. Sure enough, in my very first brainstorming class at the studio through Disney University, and I'd been teaching it for a couple of years at Imagineering, three of the top guys came up to me and said, love your class, want you to teach our entire team, but the three of us were just talking, we're not creative, they kind of said jokingly. And I said, well, first of all, you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Because... Nobody gets the job you three have and not and being not creative. But what I knew was they're making the mistake the whole world makes of confusing the word creativity with artistic ability. And mm. uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly artistic pursuits are part of creativity. Um, and, and we all know there's a lot of art out there that doesn't have a moment of creativity about it. Um, including movies and other things but um that so i thought how how do i help help these guys understand that and in a spent a year and it boiled down to four habits that i identified that the most creative people i knew practiced so the new and that became my talk recapturing your creative spirit and mm. it's probably the best of my three best known of my three ted talks and uh and and as i was writing the book the new book of with the four habits in it I had this other thing kept popping up. And I thought, what the heck is that? And I finally realized it's another habit. I call it the hidden habit and it's encouragement. Mm. And I talk the people that encouraged me. And the first time that Claude Coates came to my door and, you know, rapped on the door and said, Hey, you got a minute. I'm working on something over here. I'd like to get your opinion on. And I looked outside to see if anybody was out there laughing that they'd put him up to it. But sure enough, who honest to gosh wanted my opinion on this is the 1980s and he was he did backgrounds for Pinocchio and Snow White and so on so he'd been around a while in fact my first day at Imagineering we had a reception on the patio where we had champagne and cake and they gave Claude a diamond stud to put in his name tag wow. for 50, 
50 years of service of the Disney company. And so we became very good friends over the years. And uh, when he retired, I wrote a big article about him in our in-house uh, Disney magazine. We had a, 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 not quite a newsletter, it was an every other month magazine called W-D-I-E-Y-E, like Walt Disney Magazine. Mm. And I did a, an article on, on Claude, and um, he was very, very, very encouraging. Um, uh, and uh, as as almost all those guys were, if you got to know them even a little bit, and I and I think of other artists and teachers in, in the theater and puppetry and different fields that I've been in over the years, and it's a it's it's kind of a habit that I've picked up over the years that I'm constantly finding ways to encourage. I mean, just the other day on the phone, what was it? I was somebody was a service provider, a technical person, might have been Apple or no, it was. Um, Anyway, I don't remember. And I was talking to this woman, and she was a little dispirited about what she wanted to do. And I said, well, you can do that. What about this? What about this? And she said, you've been so helpful to me. And I said, well, I kind of do it without thinking about it. So, hmm. you know, I want I want people to create create the life that they'd love to live. Yeah. And I realized it's just, it's just part of what I do. When I was writing the book Hatch, Brainstorming Secrets of Theme Park Designer, I knew I was going to write this next book about the habits of creativity, how you can know you are creative. And I would write something and for Hatch, and I'd say, no, no, that belongs in the next book. And I would literally, you know, do a, the, the copy and paste and put it into another file for the next book so that I knew that that's the next book, that's not this book. And lo and behold, Hatch comes out and three or four of the first five reviews on Amazon are not only does he give you this great outlines uh, this great system of brainstorming almost anything but as you're reading it he re reminds you how creative you are and how that your your creativity is real and this and i'm and i'm, I'm literally yelling at my laptop saying no 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 that's the next book <laughs> and i realize i can't help myself that's what i do yeah which is great it's not a bad thing that's a that's a no. thing that Again, it started, people did that to you, and now you are now able to pass that on and continue to continue that cycle. It's great. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you kind of, you we've talked a little bit already about, of course, your first job um, with, you know, in the parades and things at, in the parks. But then I know that um, there was there was some more work with the theater community and things that you were doing there that kind of led into, I think, becoming an Imagineer. So tell us um, about how you got that job at Imagineering and how that overlapped with your, your theater life. My mother was a uh, speech coach, playwright, uh, stage director. Uh, her degree was in speech pathology and speech communications. Uh, her college work and uh, so she would work at schools as the speech therapist and drama teacher um, and so I was in all the plays I was um, and my brother was the opposite he was in all the athletics and my parents and I write about this on their my dad believed in kids being well-rounded then he said they should do everything they love and try everything else okay. and so I was in a lot of sports up through eighth grade and my brother who was the athlete was in band and choir and took art classes um, and, and, and did well. In fact, one year in our school, K through eight, he won the all school top prize in the art school art competition. And I said, wait a minute, I'm the artist, he's the athlete. Somewhat <laughs> tongue in cheek, but still a little perturbed. Yeah. And I said to my dad, I said, you're the principal, did you tell the judges not? It's our other son who's the artist. Now, I, I did 
place, fourth, first place for for the junior high part of the competition. But nonetheless, so um, always, always, always in the theater, and auditioned for a professional production of Christmas Carol about the time I met Walt Disney, and just did horribly. Inter- interrupted other people's lines and came in too soon, and so on. But the man who helped me fill out my audition card remembered that I was there alone, had come on my own, had read the asthma paper, and, and my parents had not dropped me off, nor were they picking me up. I said, I wanted to be in this, so I came. And they said, would well, you do a lot of plays? I said, oh, yeah, I do all the plays in school. My mom's a drum teacher, on and on and on. Well, he remembered that. And what struck him, well, I, I mean, I did fine in the audition, except that I was interrupting, but the actual, you know, interpretation of lines, I, I did fine, but he remembered that I was a self-starter. And they called that summer, and the next year they were doing a full season of plays in their repertory company, this is Pasadena Playhouse in Los Angeles, and uh, and Pasadena, and, and they had a full season of plays, some of which had children's parts, and could they come and talk to me about being in the cast? And so I was hired at 13 to, to join the Pasadena Playhouse as an actor. And then the first production was Richard III, William Shakespeare. Now, through, I think, a clerical error, clerical error in the office, I did not play Richard III, uh, but nonetheless was in the play. Okay. Uh, and so that was my first you know, professional gig, but I'd, I'd been playing in the church plays and school plays since I was a little kid. I was the blind shepherd boy in the all-church Christmas skit, Jesus and the Indians Go to Bethlehem. Okay. And uh, I was five. And so I'd always been in the theater. And then somewhere along the way, joined a street theater troupe that, that had a kind of a Christian bent to it. And we did medieval style and Renaissance style morality plays with characters like Death and Every Man and so on. And Lamb's Players in San Diego, they are now a very highly respected, renowned uh, residential theater company on Coronado Island. And, and that they don't do street theater anymore. I think they send out school troops and so on. So I was in that troupe for, for a few years where I met some guys. And Lambs did the street theater at the at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival with our play um, um, uh, 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 on Noah's Ark. It was called Hark the Ark, 120 Years in the Making. And... Um, let me see. Uh, oh, we were at a Renaissance Festival in Tampa, in the Tampa St. Petersburg area, and some guys from Disney Entertainment saw us, and they'd been looking for, and we knew about this, a street theater troupe for Italy in their upcoming new theme park, Italy. Um, okay. And 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 so they talked to us. We went in and talked to them, and they said, "Look, we know what you guys are looking for. Uh, you know what we can do." And they they were so much more taken with us than anything they thought they'd ever be able to do and so that was may of 82 and uh in september we moved a troop of nine people to florida to what on a three-month contract to do 10 shows a day at, at italy the second week we were there the the response was so overwhelming in fact before epcot opened there was a four-night cast member preview of epcot and cast members were just going crazy because it was audience participation. We were sarcastic. We pulled people out of the audience, put a silly costume piece on them, um, and have them do, you know, you give them something to do. If they did, it was great. If they did something else, we'd still, the trick was to get, to make it work, whatever they did. Unbeknownst to us, Imagineers, of course, were still there finishing Epcot. I mean, when Epcot opened, they were still finishing Horizon and, right. and Kodak 
imagination and so on. Remember people complaining, well, it's not even done. I mean, imagination isn't even done. I said imagination will open in January as scheduled. But they haven't yet figured out how to build a building the size of the imagination pavilion, build it in the parking lot, and then slide it into place when it's ready to open. So, <laughs> you know, people just, dumb isn't yeah. a big enough Anyway, so uh, they, um, I mean, even my buddy Joe Rohde, when he was building Everest, they had to build it in place. (laughs) Anyway, so we're at Epcot, and within the second week, the Disney guys came to us and they said, do you have more people that can do this? They said, yeah, we've got 60 people. Sometimes we do four or five Renaissance festivals simultaneously around the country. And they said, well, how soon could you get another troop here? So by Thanksgiving, of the opening year, 82, we had a troop in the UK and a troop in Italy, and we went from 10 shows a day to 12 shows a day in each. And then we had a meeting with two guys from Imagineering, a man named Randy Bright, wonderful man. He wrote the big coffee table book, Disneyland Inside Story. And uh, Disney, uh, he had worked at Disneyland as a kid, as a, as a college kid. He was a sailor on the Columbia, just, just for atmosphere. You know, early street atmosphere, if you will. Yeah. And then another guy that they that we met named Bob Weiss, and the two of them sat down with my partner, and I said, you know, we've kind of noticed that Future World is a little boring. And I said, did you notice that on your own, or did you talk to guests? <laughs> <laughs> Wondering if you guys could help us liven up Future World. So, long story short, we added three different troops, two person shows, uh, to to Future World, and and and. We stayed, we had a year-to-year contract, and we went from a three-month contract doing 10 shows a day to seven one-year contracts, and we were at one point doing 85 shows a day at Epcot. Wow. And that led to the Imagineers, Bob, the aforementioned Bob Weiss, Mm -hmm. um, calling and saying, you know, our Imagineering guys would like to meet you. And so we went out for a week, Herbie and I, and we were in a room with 40 of the top, most creative people there, all names that most of your listeners who follow Imaginarium would recognize. And I remember the first question, somebody said, what's it like doing what you do working for Disney theme parks, knowing how their management is fairly left-brained? And I said, well, I don't think they quite get us, but they certainly see that guests love us because we were we were just pulling people out of the audience and just performing there in the middle of the streets of Epcot, uh, UK and Italy. And our audiences were easily four or five hundred per show, twelve times mm. a day. And um, guests loved us, and it really, it really was a lifesaver for both Italy and UK because they didn't have major attractions. They had major attractions designed. There was a Mary Poppins ride designed for UK, but they couldn't get a sponsor. There was a gondola dark ride designed for for Italy, but they couldn't get. I've seen the models of both of those, but they couldn't get sponsors. Mm. And um, and 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 so we pretty much saved their butts in terms of the PR that Italy and UK were not, you know, didn't have the big movie or the big whatever. And especially when when American Adventure, you know, a sixty million dollar ride at the time, which would be ten times that now, would that they'd fill the auditorium. I think it's twelve hundred, whatever the seating is there. Yeah. And two minutes in, it would shut down, and they'd have to let everybody else in. Here they come down the promenade towards Italy. And we say, right this way, it's Italy, it's alive, it works every time. Hmm. And I'll never forget, one of the general managers of Epcot, Epcot was so big, they treated it operationally like two theme parks. And Bill Sullivan, the famous Sully, who has a wonderful book through theme park design, I forget the name of his books, but 
And he suddenly was standing there with me one time and came over and says, you know, he says, it, it hurts my feelings when you say that. And I says, I'm sorry, Mr. Sully, I'm not here for your feelings. What I'm doing is representing the company saying, sorry, folks, America doesn't work, so we got a show for you. <laughs> and I remember two weeks later, he tracked me down to say, you know what? I was here with my, I forget whether he said it was brother or brother-in-law, anyway, some of his relatives. And he said to Sully, that's pretty clever you guys having these comedians out here. So when America doesn't work, you said they can save the day. Yeah. So he said, I want to apologize for it. I said, that's okay. I understood what you're saying. Um, and we got along great. I, we always got along great with the operational guys. And, and so um, after that meeting, Herb and I spent a week at, 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 at Imaginary. And they told us that first day, they said, you know, we used to sit around here work on stuff, and when something wasn't working, the phrase we'd use was, it needs more Walt. He said, now the phrase we're as likely to use is, it needs more SAC theater. And we spelled mm. it S-A-K, just to make it our own name. It was something we made up over breakfast, just poop. And it was something that my mother had done in her drama classes. She had bags, grocery bags on the stage, and would come in, she'd say, grab a bag, get out the props, and become a character. One, one one bag might have a top hat, a pair of white gloves, and a cane. Another bag might have a cowboy hat, a vest, and a badge, and so on and so on. And then she'd say, and then, and then out of another hat, we'd pull out a piece of paper that had the circumstance. And we'd all improvise that. So from that, I said to Herbie, let's do bag theaters. And I said, sack theater. And I started playing with a logo, and I spelled it S-A-K, so it would be our own word. And it was as simple as that. And never changed the name, but at Disney requested we not use the name Sack at Epcot. So for Italy, it was Il Teatro di Bologna, the Bologna Theater, because the first that we know of traveling professional theater company in the world were out of the University of Bologna in Italy. And then when we moved over to the United Kingdom, it was just the Renaissance players. Wow. That's, a, that's so, crazy because that's a that's a big beginning in and of itself. But I mean, there it went so many other places, and there was so much more done even after that. Like you say, yeah, it, it didn't stop there. Right, and it and it uh, you know once that that first week at at WDI, it was still wet at the time. Walter Elias Disney Enterprises, which is what the, the Imagineering's first name was, mm -hmm. and so I sometimes revert to calling it wet. Um, and they said, we're wondering if you guys can come out here once a month or so. And so we would go once a month for a week and just work on whatever projects were going on. And so, I mean, I worked on Typhoon Lagoon. And, you know, the surf shop at Typhoon Lagoon is more interesting, I think, because I went to several meetings and said, well, what if there was an old surf bomb that ran the place? And so we created this character. Um, what was his name? Typhoon wasn't Typhoon Tom, but it was something like that. And and we never did finish and do the character because, again, Operation stepped in, so we don't need him. <laughs> you know, he was the, the forerunner of Sid Coenga from Disney MGM Studios. In fact, in fact, we came up with Sid Coenga's one-of-a-kind shop for Disney MGM Studios long before there was a Sid character. But when Michael Eisner kept insisting, he says, got to have street theater at Disney MGM. Got to have street theater. Gotta... He was this huge fan of SAC. Mm. And... Uh, he would, I mean, he would literally call me and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing my wife and kids and blah, blah, blah. We're coming up that way. The lunch at Alfredo's at 1 o'clock next Thursday. What time are your shows? And I said, well, it is every hour on the half hour. He said, nice. what does that mean? I said, every hour on the half hour. <laughs> I said, Michael, 
1130, 1130, 12, oh, every hour and a half hour. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to do and not miss the show. And so, in the earliest, earliest stages of Disney MGM, and you know, all Eisner did was say, I'm going to tear down some sound stages in Burbank, so build me a, a working studio in Florida. And that was what we were, that was what we were tasked. The brief was build a small working studio. And it was Bob Weiss and, and a handful of us who said, we're going to do our favorite thing, and that is to answer the unasked question. And we said, we're going to design a theme park that's adjacent to it. And so that's why they're in the, in the Mickey's head courtyard in front of the, the, the Chinese theater. You've got that big arched studio entryway. That was the entryway that said, you're now going into a working studio. And the way we built that part was we built the working studio first and it was open and operating and running for a full year before Disney MGM Studios opened in May of 89. And it was during that year of studio operations that they filmed the movie The Lottery, the little short subject with Bette Midler that was shown throughout the back lot as a part of the back lot tour. So they would show you how different parts of the studio worked because it was all filmed right there. Mm. Wow. So, so they said, can you guys come? You know, and so after about a year of doing that, we, we the guys came out for the groundbreaking of Disney and Gem Studios. And Marty says, hey, hey, I'm taking some of the guys to dinner at Alfredo's later. Can you join us? I said, sure. So it was Marty, Bob Weiss, uh, Chris Carradine, the architect who invented Pleasure Island, Rick Rothschild, who was show producer on Disney, on, um, on, on Pleasure Island, but had worked, had done American Adventure with Randy, the aforementioned Randy Bright. Um, the man who was head of what was then the Disney Development Company, which was a separate division that did, you know, the hotels and the maps, or the uh, the roads and so on, a couple other people. And they kept saying during dinner, you know, McNair, we need somebody like you from the show performance standpoint. We have theater lighting designers, set designers, technicals, but we don't have somebody from the live performance part uh, full time. And... Uh, and I think they knew that I knew that I probably couldn't come full-time because I was an artistic director, one of three people running a $3 million theater company. Mm. So they said, is there somebody in your organization that you'd be willing to part with? Well, in my head, I'm thinking it's got to be me. But then I'm also thinking, what are my partners going to say? And then I'm thinking, well, the only people I have who could really do that in my company, I had several. I didn't want to lose them because they were my best people. Yeah. It was a, it, you know, it was the, the the actual horns of a dilemma of a very large, angry, horned animal. <laughs> and as we're going back and forth, and Chris Carradine and Bob Weiss are trying to soft soap the deal, Marty says, "I have an idea," and down the table comes his business card, which I still have. And on the back, and he's president. He was only the president of Imagineer at the time. He, they later kept coming up with fancier titles. And on the back, in his red felt pen, flare pen, this is all pre-emails. And so if you would write an, a memo that got to Marty, <coughs> his response would be handwritten on the memo, and you'd get it back in one of those big manila envelopes with holes in it in our office memo. And I still have saved several of those of ideas I had that we finished and ideas I had that they never did. Um, yeah, not only at Imagineering, but other places. And so here's Marty's business card. And on the back, it said, wish you were here, Marty. And I looked at him and I said, is this? He said, yes. How soon can you join us? And I broke into tears. Because wow. this, uh, this was the coda. This was the end of the story that started with 
Walt poking me in the shoulder. And I, at that time, then I said, let me tell you a story. And I told him about Walt <coughs> poking me in the shoulder at age 13 and saying, and so you shall be. And Marty said, that sounds like Walt. Because Walt had hired Marty in the summer between Marty's junior and senior year while he was a, a sports editor at the Daily Brew in the school paper at, at UCLA. And, to, and Marty was the one that Walt hired to start the, the Main Street, what was it called? Main Street News, the anyway, that newspaper right. that they yeah. and um, so that was that's how it started. I said, well, oh. it may take me a year or so to extricate myself from Saks so that they can figure out how to run the company without me, not showing off, but I just had a very clearly defined job as artistic director of hiring and firing and training and writing new scripts and overseeing all of that for this company. Went back yeah. and told my two partners right away and they both congratulated me and said, you have to go and it's about eight months later that on April 1st of 87 was my first official day as a full-time Imagineer. Nice. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and you were already had a lot of uh, impact and influence and interactions in the parks and things like that before that. But now that you were officially on board, of course, Michael Eisner and others, I know, wanted you to, to expand this even more, this streetmosphere, as it would be called. And especially, like you said, at, at Disney MGM Studios uh, was a big thing that I think you said Michael Eisner really wanted to be a part of that park. And yeah, I mean, every every time there was a group presentation update of the Disney MGM Studios, Eisner would say, and Street Theater? Got any Street Theater yet? Craig and I said, I'm working on working on And it just hit me one day looking at Sid Coinders. I said, well, there's got to be a Sid. And if there's a Sid, there's his friend who's the cop. And if there's a cop... And I went back to the hotel when we'd spend a full day at Imagineering, go back and, you know, R&R &R at the hotel for an hour or so, and then somebody from Imagineering, we'd all go out to dinner, and maybe a play or this or that or something. And it was one of those nights that, that the whole Ventures Club thing was idea was born. But um, I thought it's the citizens of Hollywood. It's mm. it, and they're, they're just they're just there all day interacting with each other and with the guests. And they use the crosswalks and they don't jaywalk and they don't welcome you to a theme park. They treat you like you're in L.A. And it's 1947 and they're talking about the music and the movies of that age. <clears throat> And so I drew up characters, uh, cartoon characters in my sketchbook of all these different characters, the gossip columns. So, and the thing that I learned, the lesson I learned from being at Epcot, we had three guys who were doing Dreamfinder, all of them terrific. In fact, I just got a, an email, or no, it was a, it was a response to something I'd posted on Facebook, um, and, a, and a video um, attachment from Ron Schneider, who was the first and main Dreamfinder who stayed in touch all these years. Um, and uh, talking about about um, Figment, and they'd asked me one day to try on the suit and do it, and I did it, and I started to make Figment talk because I had done ventriloquism as a kid, and everybody loved it, and they said, well, if you do it, then everybody else is going to want to do it. And I said, I can teach those guys how to do um, ventriloquism. It's a learned skill. Yeah, <laughs> and they didn't want to do it, and so I wouldn't do it unless they would let me have, have Figment, um, Figment talk. Um, but all, but I, the thing that I noticed, <clears throat> my one and only day on set as Dreamfinders, a kid came up to me almost within the first five minutes. Says, "Hey, remember me? I was here two days ago." 
of course, I'd never met the kid. It wasn't me. It was somebody. It was it, it was either Taylor or Schneider or, or or Jim Green. Yeah. And so when I designed the Disney MGM Studios um, citizens, they were all their own characters. So even though I had two different actresses playing a gossip columnist, they had different costumes, different names, different personalities. One of them, Susie Marshall, was a gal who I'd done, been doing um, who could do a review with for for more than a year. I was I was the uh, number one stand-in for Six Bit Slocum, that uh, the the comedy character at at. at at the hoop you do at the Pioneer Hall. Okay. And I just really liked Susie, and so I was talking to her one night backstage and hoop you do. I said, I'm doing this thing, well, I've got this character you'd be perfect for. And she actually saved the day. We um, we rehearsed the citizens' characters. Well, I back up two steps. So I came up with the idea for the citizens. So I drew them all up, showed them to Herbie, and the next morning I said to Bob Weiss, I said, I need 20 minutes with the team. And I showed them streets. I showed them the citizens. And it got quiet in the room. And then there was standing ovation from the Imagineers. And Bob said, that's the best new idea I've seen in 10 years. Wow. And that's he said, I got to call them see this. And, and fortunately, we were having a, 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 a big update within a week. And all the VPs and so on came over. So I had pieces of paper covering up all of So I'd pull the paper off, show the character, and then I would do an interpretation of the character live. And Michael said, is it street theater? I said, no, sir, there are no scripted shows. It's streetmosphere. Because he asked me about the atmosphere characters they have at, at Universal, and I went and watched them. I said, well, they're playing dead people. And mm. everybody sees two actors looking just like Lucy Arnaz and, 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 and Ricky Ricardo and Lucy, and they look around and they go, oh, look, there's two people dressed up. And they don't go talk to them. That's 90% of the reaction. And 10% of the people go over and say, can we have our picture? And they take their picture, they move on. But if you talk to these actors, they were brilliant. A buddy of mine did W.C. Fields for a year. Mm. And he was brilliant at it. He even dyed his hair to be orange, which is what W.C. Fields' hair really was. Nobody ever saw that. He never made a color movie. But, but I thought, what a waste of time. So I thought, what if they were just generic citizens, the citizens of Hollywood? I ran it by Herbie. We went to dinner, came back, finished my cartoons, showed them, and everybody loved it. So as I showed it to Michael, he said, is it streetmosphere? Is it atmosphere? I said, it's streetmosphere. He said, I like that. Is that your word? I said, yes, sir, but I'll uh, I'll rent it to you. <laughs> well, within, within six months of the park opening, it is now the word in the theme park industry for characters that bring themed life to a particular zone or land or whatever area in a theme park. And I, I was just at Universal, and they had on their program that they had you going in, streetmosphere characters appearing throughout the park all day long, so on. Hey, you didn't rent uh, that to Universal. You just rented that to Disney. You didn't rent that out to everybody else. <laughs> I know. We're working on it. We're working okay, on it. Okay, good. <laughs> somebody sent me an entertainment guide from Six Flags that had streetmosphere. Oh, on. wow. <laughs> Dick Smith, who used to be the, uh, the the archivist for the Disney Archive, uh, in his lexicon, his ABC book of Disney terminology, included the word streetmosphere. That's the proudest. Wow. But, That's pretty but cool. By, by, because of the Dreamfinder thing and the confusion of three actors playing the same character, we had no, even all the three or four different people that played Hollywood, Hollywood police, they all had different names, different different characters and so on. So you knew when you talked to one, you had not. So on the days that my friend Al Arasim, I designed Sid Coenga for my actor friend Al Arasim in, 
in Minneapolis, who I'd known since college. I was at his college in the 70s and called him and said, hey, I need your audition, blah, blah, blah. I said, when you come to the auditions in Minnesota, don't act like you know me. I said, wear some khaki slacks, some old shoes, a Hawaiian shirt, straw hat of some sort, have a, have a fake cigar. And I said, just be your old hi, how are you? And uh, so I gave him the dialogue and he looked at it, which I had sent to him in advance. And as soon as he walked in, Ronnie Rodriguez, head of it, um, of, of the entertainment um, hiring group, former Disney uh, trumpet player, said, that's your guy, that look, look, the guy over there, look, he looks like your guy. I said, who? And he went rifling through my stack of drawings and he said, look at him, look at him, he looks like Sid Coenga. I said, yeah, he could be Sid. Well, I'd drone it with him in mind. And so he gets up and he does it. Hi, how is everybody? I said, here, read this. I told him what Sid was. He goes, yeah. I says, come on into my shop here at the house. We still live in the back. We got some great new things in. We got some stuff. From, and he starts riffing. We got, got, uh, I got a bracelet uh, from Claudette Colbert from Cleopatra. It's a beauty. My wife wants it, but I think I get some money for it. And so on and so on and so on. And I said, what are you doing now, Al? He says, well, he says, I make sandwiches during the day and I'm an actor at night. And I said, which one do you like better? He says, well, the sandwiches pays better, but I like the acting better. And he said, he's a thousand percent Sid Coenga. <laughs> so he goes to sit down and what we would do at the auditions, you know, if 200 people show up, we'd bring them in 10 at a time, audition them, and then they'd leave the room and then we decide who we wanted to see that afternoon for callbacks. And in the room was Roger Cox, director of Adventures Club, and Tom Sherman, director of Comedy Warehouse. So all three of us were looking looking for people. And uh, and and so as he's leaving the room, I, he turns back and he says, nice to see you, Craig. I said, good to see you, Al. I'll see you this afternoon. And Ronnie Rodriguez reaches over and pokes me in the arm and says, yo, yo, he's a ringer. I said, I designed the character for him. He said, can we get him? Can we get him? I says, we've got him. <laughs> That wraps up part one of our interview with Imagineer McNair Wilson. And we will be back next Monday with part two, where McNair will talk a little bit more about the citizens of Hollywood at Disney MGM Studios, now Disney's Hollywood Studios. He's also going to talk about his uh, deep role in Imagineering the Tower of Terror, loved attraction. And eventually we'll get into Adventurers Club stuff as well. And of course, Throughout the whole thing, he's going to sh continue to share his personal opinions, which are really interesting to hear on the current state of the Disney company as well. So can't wait to see you next week for that episode. Um, also just wanted to let you know uh, that coming up on January 24th at 7 p.m., so that's a Monday night, uh, January 24th at 7 p.m., we are going to be doing a live show on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash beyondthepixiedust. And I have some really, really exciting news that I can't wait to share with you. And I'm not gonna reveal it until the 24th, so you just gotta be there if you wanna be one of the first ones to find out about what this is. I promise it's really big news. All the links that you need for our community page and everything is over on beyondthepixiedust.com. We will see you next week.